You know, uh, I love those two songs. And I love those two songs because they're almost like a, a war taunt, if you will. Right? If you listen to those words, it's talking about, hey, our God, our God is stronger. Our God's healer. You know, the, the God of angel armies stands beside us. He's our friend. And how appropriate, right? As we are jumping in and continuing our book, our look at the book of uh, Genesis. Because if you remember, the book of Genesis is written in the context of a nation, a group of people who have been called out of slavery, of bondage in Egypt after several hundred years. And God raises up a deliverer named Moses. And he says, hey, I've heard my people's cry, Moses, in Exodus chapter 6. And he says, I'm going now to show up in a mighty way. And I'm going to show you that all the gods of Egypt are false gods. I'm going to show you who the one true God is. Your God, Moses, is going to be, is going to prove to be stronger and greater. The God of angel armies is by your side and I'm going to lead you out. And before I do that, I'm going to show a marvelous display of 10 plagues. I'm going to take all those little pagan gods of Egypt, all those things they worship. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn them on their head. And what I'm going to do, Moses, I'm going to take you out and I'm going to redeem my people. I'm going to save them from captivity and bondage and slavery. And then I'm going to give you my word and you're going to record my word in a book so that my people will always be able to look back and remember my goodness to them. And they'll have my truth and it will set them apart. So they'll be a nation, unlike all the other nations, they'll, they will be Exodus nineteen six. They will be to me a kingdom of priests. And I intend Moses to use this nation to be a blessing to all the other nations of the earth. And so when I hear those two songs right there, knowing that we're about to jump into the book of Genesis, I sit there and I go, man, this is being written. Genesis is being written by Moses, the one who God used to rescue his people. This is being written to a a people who have been called out of captivity and bondage to freedom. And they have a great hope of a promised land a land that was promised to Abraham. And God's going, hey, I'm going to send you there. I've got something greater in store for you. And you know, their story's our story. And that's why we get to stand up here this morning and we get to sing, hey, our God is stronger. Our God is greater. The God of angel armies, he's our friend. Okay, I don't know if, if you're here today for the first time or you've been traveling with us through Summit and Watermark for a really long time, regardless, man, I'm glad you're here. And I hope if for any other reason, you're just reminded this morning or maybe even told for the first time that there's a, there's a God who redeems, who changes lives, who rescues us, rescues us from bondage and slavery and captivity and sin and garbage and junk and hard, difficult circumstances. And he rescues us and he gives us his word. It's to set us free, to show us there's a better way because on our own, gang, we will wander and we'll stay in captivity and bondage. But the rescuer that he sent to us is Jesus. And here's the whole thing that's so great about this God that we serve and what makes him unlike any other gods far in Egypt, hundreds of years ago or, or 
or what the world religions will offer you today is that our God is so great and so good and so kind and so merciful that he's able to forgive even the most heinous of sins. Even the sins you committed last night. Even those sins that in the back of your mind you, you feel unworthy even to walk in here this morning. You got some of those? And just to know that there's a God who goes, hey, you know what? I can take care of that. I can take what's broken. I can take what's hurting. I can take those things that bring you shame, despair in your life, those fears, those insecurities, those pains and those regrets. I can deliver you from Egypt. And, and I just want you to know me. I want you to trust me. I want you to recognize that I have a, a promised land. I have something better for you. Their story is our story. And the God we serve, the God of angel armies, wants you to be his friend. He seeks that relationship with you. And what makes him so great is, is a relationship with him is not earned, it's not deserved. There's nothing we could do to make God love us more. There's nothing we could do to make him love us less. But we have that relationship with him. We come into that relationship with him by grace through faith. And so it's fun just to rise early and to be with you guys and remind ourselves early in the morning before we go attack our day and spread out all over the Metroplex and wherever else you're going today, all your appointments, all the challenges you face, and just be reminded, hey, our God's stronger. The God we worship, that's the God of Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Our God's stronger. And he can rescue and deliver and lead and guide you. And so uh, I'm excited about what Summit has in store. And we're going to look at the book of Genesis and continue our study there. And the reason why I'm often asked, well, why, why study Genesis? Why study the Old Testament? We're not under the law anymore. Why, why are we reading Genesis? Let's go to the New Testament. And I just sit there and I go, oh, because you've got to understand Genesis is the foundation. It's the foundation upon which everything else is built. You see, your Old Testament is your New Testament concealed. And your New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You hear that? The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You cannot understand the richness and the truths of the New Testament without a proper understanding of what's promised and explained in the Old. One guy said it like this in answering the question, why study Genesis? He said, the major themes of Scripture may be compared to great rivers ever deepening and broadening as they flow. And it is true to say that all these rivers have their rise in the watershed of Genesis. Or to use an equally appropriate figure as the massive trunk and wide-spreading branches of the oak are in the acorn, so by implication and anticipation, all Scripture is in Genesis. Here we have in germ all that is later developed. It has been truly said that the root of all subsequent revelation are planted deep in Genesis, and whoever would truly comprehend that revelation must begin here. Why study Genesis? Because it's the foundation, it's the acorn, it's the beginning of that river upon which everything else grows. When you understand Genesis, you can understand. Um, 
Paul's argument in the book of Romans about justification by faith, where he takes, looks at Abraham and goes, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And Paul builds his whole argument on justification by faith from where? From the book of Genesis. It's when you understand Genesis, it's like you take that black and white TV that you watch, right? Some of you don't even know what black and white TV is. There was a day in which your TV was in black and white and there was no remote control. I know it's crazy, right? But um, it's like taking that black and white TV and putting it in HD color. Man, and there's a big difference between the black and white and HD color. Black and white, you, you still can see and understand the story, but man, that HD color, it pops. There's a lot of clarity. And when we understand Genesis and we give ourselves to the study of Scripture and the understanding of the Old Testament, boy, that TV turns into HD when we go over and read Romans. And we understand the implications and the grace and the love and the truth of God's word. Why well, study Genesis? Well, in Genesis, you, you see the beginning, right? You see humanity's first rebellion, the entrance of sin, the beginning of the curse and death. You see the creation of heaven and earth. That's, that's the acorn. And as you make your way through scripture, you recognize this is all one book. It's all one book. The Bible is composed of 66 books. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. Real easy for you to remember that, right? Old, three letters in old, O-L-D. In Testament, trust me, there's nine letters. 39 books are in your Old Testament. It's broken up into three parts. You have 17 historical books, five poetical books, 17 prophetical books. So really just the story of the Old Testament is told in those first 17 books, but it even gets easier than that. Some of those books just review and repeat what was said from a previous book. So really all you have to know is 11 historical books. And then everything else just sheds greater light on that story. Genesis is the beginnings of this great story, this grand drama, this unfolding story of which God is telling from Genesis to Revelation. You see in Genesis the beginning of man's rebellion, and you get to Revelation, you see how it's all one book, you see humanity's final rebellion. You see in Genesis the beginning of sin and death, and then you see how God is taking care of sin and death and the lifting of the curse in Revelation. You see the creation of heaven and earth in Genesis, you you see the creation of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 20 through 22. It's almost like God providentially has orchestrated this whole of all the events of history, and he has. You can't understand Revelation. You know, if we were to say to you, we're going to have a study on the book of Revelation, this room would probably be filled three times over because everybody's like, I want to understand Revelation. And I just say, you can't understand Revelation if you don't understand Genesis because it's all one book. Why study Genesis? Because it's here upon, upon which everything else is built. When you walked in today, hopefully you received a chart, right? And it has, let me see if I can find mine. And I encourage you to, to take it out. It's just this chart right here. And you had this last uh, time we got together, and we're just going to keep building upon it. But I want to give you a little bit of background to this book. I'm going to walk you through an overview of it real quickly, and then we're going to jump in specifically to Genesis 25. 
But as I said, this book was written by Moses, the leader of God's people out of sin and bondage in Egypt on the way to the promised land, the one whom God revealed his law, his truth, his word. You've got to realize in the context in which this was written, this was a polytheistic culture. There was a God of the moon, a God of the stars, a God of the water, a God over all of nature. It's a polytheistic culture. And in this culture, God injects his truth and goes, no, 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 there's one true God. This book was written following the Exodus to a people, a nomadic people, who were having to depend upon God every day for their daily needs. They followed him by by a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. God gave them water in the desert. He gave them uh, food to eat every day, but they could only take that day's provision. And what he was doing is he was showing his people that you can depend upon me every single day, but you've got to trust me. Oh, I know you were faithful today, Lord, but will you be faithful tomorrow? No, no, just take enough food for today. Don't believe in all the gods that you hear about back from Egypt. There's only one true God. Remember the God who rescued you from Egypt. And they're on the way to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This book has really a universal focus, and then it has a a national focus. The first 11 chapters reveal the origin and purpose of the universe, life, and humanity. But then you see the focus go from a real wide angle lens to a very narrow singular focus, now to a national focus, as we focus on one man and his family, Abraham. And it's, it goes to reveal to the Exodus generation God's plan for Israel and why they can trust him. In this book, you'll see the themes of the nature of God and man. We understand about who God is, that there's only one God, that he's sovereign, that he's worthy of our worship, that he's good, that he wants a relationship with us. We see that man, despite God's goodness and provision, man continually rebels against God and chooses his own self-will to follow his path and how that only just brings pain and regret. We see the themes of creation and blessing, but also of sin and judgment, faith and redemption. What's great in Genesis, as I told you, their story is our story. You also see just this, this beginning, if you will, of uh, the shadows of what is to come throughout Scripture. You see the story of Christ in Genesis. Specifically in Genesis 3.15, where where God, even in the judgment, speaks of the serpent is going to bite the heel of the the descendant of Adam, but this one descendant is going to crush the head of the serpent. You see how Adam, in Romans 4, Paul picks up again on the themes of Genesis and shows how Jesus is the second Adam. The name Noah means rest. And how Noah was an instrument in God's hand to be a deliverer of sin and judgment. The book of Hebrews picks up on on this story and shows us, hey, that Noah's story is our story. That we're wallowing in sin and judgment and chaos. But God has provided a way out for those of us who will trust in his provision. And that day it was an ark. And to today, it's the grace and the love of Jesus Christ as exemplified on the cross. 
We see in Hebrews 7 the story of Melchizedek and how he's a king without any um, lineage toward him. And Abraham pays homage to him. You see the story of Joseph and how Joseph's stories is the story of the gospel. Even made a movie about that. For those that you have, who have seen it. Some of the key chapters are chapter 3 where man rebels against God. Chapters 12 and, and 15 where we see what's known as the Abrahamic covenant, which I'll speak about here in a second. Some of the key words throughout this book are that you'll see repeated over and over again, these ideas of generations, covenant, blessing, and death. This book's really easy to outline. You've got four events and four people. Four events, four people. You have the first four events are creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. And then you have four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They are the patriarchs. Every book of the Bible, gang, I want to encourage you, be able to write down in your mind just what's the structure or the framework of that book. And so I'm going to repeat this every week we get together so that you can remember the contents of this book. You know, so often when we study scripture, what happens is we dig deep into one particular area, but we don't see where it fits in context. We may know the story of Abraham, heard the story of Abraham. We just can't tell you where to find it. You may have heard David, but you don't know where David is in relationship to Samson or where Noah is in relationship to Elijah and what the sequence is. And we've got to understand the the grand drama, the unfolding story. And so what I want to do is I want to give you handles so that when you think Genesis, you think keyword beginnings. It's the beginning of everything. It's broken up into four parts. You have creation. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. God is referred to as Elohim. He's the strong, sovereign, powerful God. What he speaks happens. But then in Genesis 2, you see a retelling of the creation account. Why? Well, now God uses the name Yahweh, no longer Elohim. Yahweh is the personal covenant name of God. And it shows that the God who's strong and sovereign and the creator of all the heavens of the earth wants to have a personal relationship with us. He's relational in nature. He forms us like a potter shaping clay. And he places us in a garden and he gives us what we need and all the provision. But then in Genesis 3, we see the fall where God, in his goodness, gives us everything we need, but he gives us choice because any relationship has to be built upon choice and trust. And we rebel against God. We think that, hey, we don't need God. We can do it our way. And so Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, rebelled against God, and their story is our story. And we would have chosen the same. And we prove that every day of our lives. When we go, hey, God, not your way, my way. And that's the sin and pride of man. My way, my will, not your will be done. And then you see the flood where sin just is contagious. Descendants after descendants of, from um, Adam and Eve just grow. And death and sin and corruption is spread throughout the world. And God just goes, hey, you know what? I'm going to provide a, a deliverer, but I'm going to judge my world. And he floods the world, but he provides a way of escape for Noah 
and, the right, and a righteous remnant. And then the Tower of Babel. Well, this is just man's absolute obstinance against God. Where they gather together and go, we don't need God. We'll just take all of our best human resources, our ingenuity, our skills, our labor, all of our education, all of our strength, and we'll build a tower and we'll be greater than God. Sound familiar? We can live independently of God. We don't need him. Who cares what his word has to say? And that's what they did. And they built a monument to themselves for their glory and for their renown. Look how strong I am. And God stooped down, the scripture says, and he spread them out amongst the nations. And that's known as the Tower of Babel as he gave them different languages. But all that's review. That's all from our last time together. And that's the beginning part, the universal focus of Genesis. And then we entered into look at the life of Abraham, where God in his goodness chooses one man in this polytheistic, rebellious, prideful, self-centered world. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to start with you. And Abraham, I'm going to change, his name was Abram. I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham. And I promise you, Abraham, three things. Land, a great land. I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And despite the fact that you're old and your wife, Sarah, is barren, I'm going to give you many descendants. As many descendants as you see the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashores. From your wife's barren womb will come a child of promise. And from this person, I will rescue all of humanity. And this promise, which is told to us in Genesis chapters 12 and 15, we see fulfilled in Jesus in Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, who is declared to be the son of Abraham. And so when we open up the New Testament, what does the New Testament do? It takes us back to Genesis, what we're studying. And it declares God's faithful to his promises. After all these generations, he was faithful to his promise to Abraham. He's provided a savior. And so that, those three promises are known as the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, or descendants, if you will, and blessing. Genesis 12 and 15. But the first son of promise is Isaac. And you've heard a little bit of that story where Abraham goes to offer Isaac. And so that's where we're going to pick up. Our study, now that I've reviewed what we did last time we were together, our study is going to look at Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And hopefully now you see where does it all fit? What's leading up to what we're going to look at? Some of the unique features of this book you have in that chart right there, Genesis is great because it forms the basis of a biblical worldview. This is so key, gang. I hope you guys hear me when I say this. You can evaluate every ideology in major world religion based upon what I'm about to share with you right here. It's in Genesis that we see the answer to the question, how did it all begin? It's in Genesis we see the answer to the question, what is the problem? What is the solution? And what does the future hold for us? Where are we going? 
You see, the biblical worldview answers the question, hey, how did it all begin? Who are we? What's the problem? Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? What's the solution? And where are we going? Every ideology and world religion answers those questions just differently than we see in Scripture. As I said, it moves from a universal focus to a national focus. We see the institution, the giving of two uh, um, God-given institutions, marriage and government in Genesis. We see the beginning of God's rescue plan through Abraham and the repeated phrase over and over again, these are the generations of. When you also take a look at that chart real quick, when you walked in and turn to the back, you'll see that what we want you to do during our time together, it's one thing for for me to stand up here and, and speak. What we'll do together is we're spending a little longer in here today just because this is the introduction. But typically, I'll spend about 20 minutes with you, whoever's up here. We'll spend about 20 minutes together. We'll go over one portion of Scripture that we discussed or that you studied during your, your time during the week, and then you'll have a chance to break. And for about an hour or so, you'll be in a smaller group, and you'll be able there to take uh, the truths of Scripture and to talk about the implications and the so what and the practical um, applications of, that, of, what you, of what you read and what it means in your life. And so, but what we want you to do is to do your homework so that you can come and be ready to discuss. And part of that is what you have in the book that you hopefully receive, that little red book. But then also we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 24, and we're going to read 24 in several chapters this week. But what I want you to do is, it's just, and there's nothing, there's not a right or wrong answer here, but I want you to title each chapter. I want to cha- challenge you to figure out, hey, what do you think the key verses are for each chapter? And then I want you to write down, if you would, what are the contents, what happens in that chapter? And you can see I've made, I've given you chapters 1 through 23 of just what I've, what I've written. And what's great about this now forever, when I have the book of Genesis and I'm going to teach, I can just pull this out. And you can do this for each book of the Bible. But this will help you get a handle on Genesis and you can know it for yourselves. All right? What you see on the far right side is just a question mark. And what do I mean by that? Those are what I refer to as the interpretive challenges, those places in scripture you're going to read and you're going to go, what in the world does that mean? And you don't have to answer each question that you ask. Just make note of it. What's the chapter and the verse of which this is making you scratch your head and go, man, if I was asked this question, I don't know how I'd answer it. So I'd like for you to make note of those things that you read that you don't know the answer to. And then one or two of them, do a little digging. And come ready to discuss that in your group because chances are you're not the only one who had that same question. And you guys can look at it and dig into it together. For instance, you are going to read in Genesis chapter 25 about Jacob and Esau. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis 25. I titled Genesis 25, Two Nations in One Womb. And the reason for that is, as you can see in verses 19 and following, well, specifically 23, Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has two boys, Jacob and Esau. 
And the Lord says in verse 23, two nations are in your womb, his wife, Rebecca's womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau, daddy's boy, but he because he ate of his game, but Rebecca loved Jacob, mama's boy. All right? Now look at what verses 30 through 34, they raise a question when you read this. The question is, what is the significance of Esau selling his birthright to Jacob? Maybe you've heard this story and thought, man, what is going on here? We don't have birthrights that we can sell. What's the implication? What's the application for us today? This seems to be a turning point in the story. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stool, and he ate and he drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now we read this, and I'm sitting there going, man, a birthright? What does that mean? What's, what's the implication of that? Well, let me give you, let me help you, all right? There's three questions you always want to ask yourself, and I encourage you to write these down. Three questions you ask yourself whenever you're studying God's word, you want to know what it means. I had two people email me just this in the past week that I answered with this very answer I'm giving you. As they're reading through in the journey right now and reading some of the Old Testament law, they're like, what application does this have for us? Why are we even reading this? We're not under the law. Why should we even read this? How do we apply it? Answer right here. When you're reading scripture, the first question you want to know is, what was the intent of the author? What did it mean historically? What were the Israelites who Moses wrote to during this time? What was Moses trying to get across to that particular audience? What did it mean then, in the past, to them, the original hearers? You want to understand that. The second question you want to ask yourself is, and this is true of all the scripture, Genesis to Revelation, you want to ask yourself, what does it always mean? What is that timeless, universal principle that Moses was trying to, to give to the original hearers that would also be true forever. And then you want to ask yourself, so what does it mean today? So I want to show you what that looks like. And I want to use this as just in the final few minutes we have together as as an opportunity to hopefully encourage and challenge you as well. I looked at this little story and I, and I just thought to myself, you know, I'm not dying for lentil stew, right? I don't have a birthright. I don't have my, my, my father and I don't pass down birthrights. I'm not sure what the implication is of that. Why is this so important? 
It's certainly, as you will read, you will see that it's a turning point in Scripture. And so I asked myself, so what did it mean? And here's the idea. Seeking immediate gratification, Esau was willing to trade the long-term benefits of his birthright. What is that? He, as the oldest, was given a double inheritance. He was given a double inheritance and a spiritual promise as you study what was promised to Abraham for a bowl of food. A double inheritance and the spiritual promise that comes with having that birthright all because his flesh cried out and he wanted immediate gratification to satisfy his flesh. You see what he says? Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Jacob replies, well, sell me your birthright. Now, Jacob's a swindler, and you'll learn that. He even is willing to wrestle with God. So he's no saint in this story. But it's telling to me because Esau said, I am about to die. You ever felt that way before? You ever looked at something and just thought, man, I've got to have that. If I don't, I'm going to die. Your flesh ever cry out like that? What's that timeless truth? See, we are Esau, gang. We are Esau. And we've got to be aware of the allure of immediate gratification because it can come at a great cost. Sometimes our flesh cries out because we want something. It looks good. And we reach out for it, and what happens is we sacrifice our purity for passing pleasure, our integrity for man's approval, our financial well-being for whatever it is that's out there, our health for a harmful habit. You see, for Esau, it was that bowl of stew. His flesh, he was exhausted. I'm tired. I want that bowl of stew. And so he despised what was of greater value and significance to him long-term in order to satisfy his, his fleshly cravings. And gang, we do the same thing. We'll despise our marriage, our purity, our fidelity, all for a fantasy on a computer. We'll despise, gang, our integrity at work and with clients that we serve. Why? Just so we can get the greater deal, the bigger bonus, the promotion, the recognition. I've got to have that client. I've got to have that deal. I want to feel good now. And so we'll compromise. We'll cut corners. We're a lot like Esau. The whole concept of delayed gratification. It's hard for us to teach it to our children, right? It's hard for us to remember that. And so this story is a, it's a warning to us, really, It's not just a story of back then, but it's a warning for today that we've got to be careful. We've got to ask ourselves, hey, what is that bowl of stew in our lives? 
a few questions that probably you received when you walked in is, hey, can you relate to Esau and why? In what ways is this story a warning to us? And how can we guard against making the same mistake he made and allowing our flesh to dictate our actions? Imagine if Esau was in your little small group this morning and it's not a bowl of stew that we're craving, but something else. Maybe it's recognition. Maybe it's a bonus. Maybe it's promotion. Maybe it's a fantasy. And how do we counsel each other? How do we help each other when we've blown it? You see, I think Genesis has a lot to say to us. Not just in the old generation, but for us today. And so typically what we'll do is we'll spend time in here and then we'll go into our small groups. And when you walked in on your name tag, you got a name tag, hopefully, and you'll see on there, there is a room assignment. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow you to break here in just a second. And I want you to go to that room. If it says breakout and it has a number, you are in one of the breakouts that's surrounding this room up here. If you have a second, third, or fourth floor on your name tag, that's across the sky bridge in the tower right across the way over here. If you don't have a name tag or your name tag says open group, you'll stay in here and then we'll sign a group for you and you can get into a group this next week. But we'd encourage you to bring your friends. We could all, always place them into a group. Um, if they come the first week, they can either jump in with you if you'll just let us know that they're doing that or they can jump in the open group. Some resources for you that I recommend uh, that will help you as you're making your way through the book of Genesis. There's some commentaries here that I think are outstanding on the left and, and then just some websites here on the right. <clears throat> all of our notes, the recording of our messages, they'll all be on the men's channel on our website so you can see the slides and hear this again. Um, gang, if you would, just help us with parking each week. We ask you to park to the west of that double yellow line outside. We have parkers. If you'll help them, they'll remind you each week. But if you'll park to the west of that double yellow line, we'll be a, hopefully a courteous and a blessing to our neighbors next door. We do that out of respect and to honor them. Um, and I uh, hope that each of you grabbed a workbook. If you didn't, you can get one downstairs. Bobby, is there anything else I need to... Mention on that? All right, well, I'm going to pray for us, and then I let you go to your groups to have a chance just to talk a little bit about Jacob and Esau and, um, and get to know each other, and then uh, you can take off, all right? Well, Lord in heaven, I want to thank you for your kindness and your grace. I want to thank you, Father, that even when we are Esau, Lord, that, um, Father, that you provide grace and forgiveness. I pray, Lord, you would help us to learn from the mistakes that we make when I have a desire to seek immediate gratification, Lord. We compromise. Um, I pray that we learn from our mistakes and that, um, Father, we would humble ourselves, yield to your spirit. And, um, and Lord, I, I just thank you that you have recorded your word in a book in such a way that we could study and learn and be encouraged and have immediate application to our lives today. Thank you for these men and their commitment to rise early. I pray, Lord, that you'd bless their discussion. And, um, and Lord, help them today to be men, Lord, that, uh, that honor you in all their work, their time with their family, their friends, and their coworkers. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, gang, we'll see you back here next week.